Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Discover More, where we strive to accelerate the learning process together through intentional dialogues. My name is Benoit. And my name is Aiden. This podcast was built on the foundation of approachable guests, synthesized experiences, and relatable lessons that will help you grow throughout your journey. Thank you for tuning in this week. We hope you enjoy and continue to discover more. Championing all lives matter, it takes a blind eye to many of the various issues that black people face in almost every facet of society. So I think it's definitely important when you meet people that are championing that to have a hard dialogue and have a hard hard conversation about what they believe. And you share your beliefs as well, but in a productive sense so you guys can achieve some common ground. Uh, Because I believe it's important for people to know how problematic that is and how it's further stifling the plight of black Americans in this country. So, Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Discover More. This week, we have something special for everyone, and this will be our first interview with a guest since before COVID-19. The reason why we have decided to, of course, take our proper measures and still be compliant with all the CDC regulations in terms of safety is that it's the current climate that we are in, both political and in terms of the human rights issues, and especially related to the Black Lives Matter and the all related issues. The guest we have on today after nearly four months of hiatus on this podcast is Monte Fowler. He is a recent MSW graduate from the University of Pennsylvania, and he's an African-American, and he was raised in Philadelphia, and we thought it was extremely timely and relevant to have someone from the direct source in the community that is most affected in the current issues. Monte was the first in his family to graduate from college with a bachelor's degrees and a master's degrees from Penn. He was also one of the 24 students graduating from Temple University to receive a Diamond Award for superior leadership, academic achievement, and service to the community. That's one of 24 students out of the entire school population of 40,000 students. And one of his organizations also received Organization of the Year Award for his commitment and his service to the community around him. Important disclaimer that I, myself, and my co-host Aiden, we want to share in the beforehand is that Although I am an Asian American, although I've personally experienced numerous microaggressions, numerous racism and stereotypes throughout my life, I can never say and I will never say I understand the type of atrocity, the type of oppression and suppression that Monte and his communities have gone through. And I also first recognized and I want to make that stance that I'm here to learn, I'm here to observe, I'm here to create that united pathway for all of us moving forward together. Monte, welcome to the show, and we both are extremely grateful and excited for this very timely opportunity for all three of us to learn, to observe, but mostly for two of us to listen from your perspective, from your personal lens, and your personal upbringings. All right. Thank you guys for the opportunity uh, to come today. So for the listeners, my name is Monte. I'm from the Philadelphia area. I'm a recent graduate of University of Penn, Master of Social Work program. And I like to refer to myself as a community-driven entrepreneur. For the past three to four years in my undergraduate and graduate tenure, I've immersed myself into um, service in the Philadelphia area in the nonprofit sector, in the education space, but just the public sector as a whole because I recognize the void for people of color who have reached a certain stature in education. 
Um, I realized the importance of us being present and being vocal in our community, whether it's, you know, sharing information, sharing resources. That's what I've done with my life for the past three to four years. That's awesome, man. And I think before we dive right in, because I think it is such an interesting blend that not only were you raised in the local environment of Mm -hmm. Philly, but also you've taken it as your education and your purpose to give back to that community and Mm -hmm. really create change in the community. So before we dive into the Black Lives Matter movement and Mm -hmm. specifically what's happening in this political environment, I want to echo what Ben said to start. And as a white male, I definitely acknowledge my white privilege and that I grew up without much of a perspective into the black community. So with this conversation, I'm really here to listen, learn, and hopefully bring our different perspectives into a place of harmony, one that can actually create good change. So from there, I want to ask you directly, like, what's your perspective around what's happening, either on the macro of the country or the local of Philly? Just what are your two cents of what's been going on the last month? Obviously, the murder of George Floyd was an atrocious act. Um, The subsequent protests and riots, I don't think anyone could have seen coming. So how do you really make sense of all this? It's been truly disheartening and also very discouraging as a black man, but I feel like I'm conflicted on this issue because... What's going on right now, it's, as I said, it's disheartening, but it's not surprising because America has a long-standing history um, in racism, starting with slavery, then going to the Jim Crow, and thereafter. You know, I see that America doesn't value the black body, and it shows in our education system, it shows in the criminal justice system, it shows in our neighborhoods and the communities. And as a child growing up, I always heard people throw around this term of the system, People would say, you know, the system is designed for us to fail or the system is broken. And I feel like I'm just now as a 24 year old man starting to understand exactly what that system is. And you see that it's a system of system systematic racism, but environmental racism that stifles black people in their progression. And if you need some examples of that, you can look at, you know, redlining, which is a system of unfair uh, practices that discriminate people, black people, from securing housing and loans that could ultimately better their living circumstances. You can look at the school-to-prison pipeline and how uh, black bodies are policed or black and Latino kids are targeted within our schools. Um, We go into schools where we're getting pat down by officers. Uh, We have to put our things through metal detectors. We're suspended and uh, expelled from schools at disproportionate rates. It's just so many angles to where you can look at this issue. And on the other side of it, I would like to say that I'm also inspired as a millennial because I've never lived through a moment this powerful where I've seen my people come together to fight for a common cause. A lot of the conversations I've been having recently with my friends, uh, we've been saying like we're living through our version of the civil rights movement, but it's different because we have technology where we don't all have to go and be on the front line. It's other ways that we can orchestrate change within, you know, the seats of our home. You can share information online. uh, You can donate. You can sign petitions. Just sharing resources and raising awareness through little acts like putting a symbol on your social media, like changing, you know, your avi to a black circle or something like that. Like it goes a long way. People might see it and, you know, they're questioning, like, why did you do that? So I would say that, I'm inspired way more than I have been discouraged because I feel equipped with the knowledge that I have. We have so many resources with the internet. So if I see something online, and I'm not an expert on any of this stuff, 
but I'm a curious person and I pride myself on self-education. So if I see something that I'm not familiar with or not well-versed in, I just research it. Like even before I came here, I was looking stuff up uh, about the history of police brutality in this country, the history of redlining, the history of Jim Crow. I was looking up those things and over the past two weeks, I've continually just been reading and arming myself with that knowledge because I feel like we cannot truly progress until we know where we've come from and we use that perspective to innovate and adapt based on where we are today. Yeah, very well said. And I just want to highlight a couple of your backgrounds and a couple of, of your perspective. Mm -hmm. The one of many particular reasons, aside from the current climate and the current sensitive political landscape that's going on, the reason why we invited you to the show is because A, of course, is your ethnicity and your direct relationship as an African-American male. Mm -hmm. But secondly, it's also your background in MSW, which is Masters in Social Work. Mm -hmm. We both know that as a male, you're on the less dominant ratio in the social service, right? 95% of our field is comprised of women. And especially as a minority, I don't know that many other Asian men that are in the social service field. Right. Of course, I'm not a social worker. However, I do work with them. So I do have a lot of exposure. And for you, Monte, you as an African-American male, why did you choose specifically the social work sector and what do you think that experience has given you sort of additional perspective that other black men may not share? So I just want you to talk a little bit about your MSW experiences and or the perspective that you have gained from, from the experience. Well, I chose social work because I love meeting new people and I also have a passion for a service in the community. It's something that I've seen my entire life. Uh, my, my grandmother came to America when she was 15 years old with Christian missionaries from Monrovia, Liberia. And growing up, um, she always kept that connection to our our family and our culture back home. So I would see her gather clothing items to send back home, food, non-perishable goods, and things of that nature. And as a kid, I didn't really understand what she was doing, but I always paid attention to it. My grandmother was also in charge of the Foreign Missions Committee at our church, where she would do a lot of the same work in terms of advocating for our people back home. So that really inspired me to initiate change in my own respective community. But as a child, I would look at my community and I wondered why students in the more privileged and affluent area went to school in a certain way and why my school in a low income background was more distressed. When I went into my neighborhood to go to the park and recreation center, why on our track and field there was glass or you know trash and dirt. And when I go to St. Joe's in the Maniunk area, uh, this track and fields look like something where the pin relays might be held or in my school where the student to teacher ratio is 40 to one and uh, there is no support staff to help my teacher uh, de-escalate students. So I would say I always knew that I wanted to be a social worker. I always wanted to answer some of those broader, you know, societal level questions, but I narrowed down my focus when I, once I went to college and I became more passionate about college access, but also enriching the lives of students from low income backgrounds through nonprofit work, just exposing them to higher level opportunities and doing it a lot earlier. I feel like we wait until students get to high school and low income backgrounds and it's really like a reactionary job. I think we could be doing a lot more earlier in terms of, you know, exposing students to their options outside of high school and their primary education, letting them know what's out there so we can make the most informed uh, decision as possible because college isn't for everyone. I know I went on a small tangent, but I said all of that to say um, that's what basically led me to choosing social work. As I've been in social work, my perspective has been enhanced because I've got to see 
a lot of the issues that my community faces on a broader level. When I was younger, I used to think that life in Philadelphia was just in Philadelphia. I didn't know that poverty looked the same no matter what city you were in, whether you're in Detroit, whether you're in Oakland, whether you're in Chicago. So as I started to go immerse myself into my studies, I was like, man, this is this is not just kids in Philadelphia. This is kids all over the United States. And I wanted to know why that was like that. So although I do have a substantial level of privilege because I'm college educated and I went to uh, University of Penn, like I said, for the past few years, I've been intentional about placing myself in the community to feel what they feel, to see what they see. I think I just got to see a lot of the issues that people who are under-resourced face in the community and, you know, some of the ways we can initiate change from where we are. I think one of the more popular terms that have been going on for a while, but especially that have been put on a spotlight during this tumultuous time is systematic racism yes. and systematic oppression, right? A lot of people in the far right, they say, oh, there's no such thing as systematic racism because the country is not anti-black. Mm -hmm. However, my personal definition for systematic racism isn't that the U.S. as a country or a government is anti-black or anti any other race, but the fact that there's historical footings and there's historical footprint and just history of obviously whites oppressed both Asians and African-Americans for a long, long time. And the implicit and explicit racism on an individual level, they all attribute to the collective racism, the collective biases, the collective oppression. That's what systematic racism to me means. When I was four or five years old in France, I was born in Paris. I witnessed and experienced my mom getting spit on by a French white man in a subway. Mm -hmm. I'm almost 27, but I was four. I don't remember that many memories from when I was young, but that image has been just carved into my brain. I'll never forget that. This white French dude just spit on my mom because of her color, because the fact that she was an Asian woman in a subway with a four-year-old kid. The even more cruel and the sad part that I, that I recall is not a single person around us in our cargo of uh, subway reacted no one reacted no one even looked at us no one even showed pity no one even showed sympathy empathy that was like, okay just it's normal just asian people getting oppressed or getting spit on racism is universal racism is a global issue mm -hmm. and it is a human rights issue because i think one of the power of having a public platform you have a youtube channel aiden and myself have started this passion project a podcast mm -hmm. and of course with the privilege, with the opportunities, we were able to amass a certain level of audiences. And I think it is unique opportunity for three of us to have someone directly to talk about their experiences because everyone have go through so much news fatigue. We all hear about BLM, we all hear about the protests, we all hear about black men getting killed, but people get desensitized to it. And after so much exposure, like, okay, just another guy was getting shot, right? And you don't think it's real. You don't think it's actually happening in the streets. I, prior to coming into Philadelphia, I've heard stories of people getting jumped and stabbed in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. My first weekend in Philadelphia three years ago, I was jumped mm -hmm. in the back alleyway. I have a scar. I went to the ER room and I woke up with, without my wallet, without everything. And the nurse said that, yeah, you could have been stabbed. That happened to me on my first weekend in Philadelphia. It wasn't because I wasn't situation aware. It wasn't because I was complacent, but because experience always comes before insight. I'm sure you've heard that slogan before, right. right? 
I knew people get stabbed. I knew people get jumped. But I was in the middle of Center City at one of the most vibrant neighborhood. I never thought I'd get jumped. But there I was. I was jumped. I was knocked out. My head hit the curb. And I think by having you on this show, you can give that personal perspective and lens to like what we experience now as a collective. And more importantly, what you experience throughout your whole life. And especially during this time is real. So can you share a little bit about some of the experiences and how has the issues related to the BLM had affected you growing up? Because of course you're from the community itself and what we can do to do better and what are some of the comments and some of the efficacy you want to make? I think my grandmother did a great job from of shielding me from a lot of the things that went on outside. Like I said, um, my grandmother immersed me into the church. So I feel like if I wasn't at school, I was at church. So I didn't ever have to face police brutality directly, but a lot of my friends in my community did. So a lot of my friends were racially profiled, racially targeted, treated wrongfully by the police. Even in my schools, like the the way that the, the police responded to us and handled us, I feel like we were always perceived as a target. And my perspective is so interesting because I tell people just all the time, I'm from Southwest Philadelphia. Where I grew up is 10 to 15 minutes away from University of Penn's campus. You know, there is a movie theater on Penn's campus. When I was younger, I think it was called The Rave. Um, And I saw, basically, I used to go there. That was like the epicenter of my childhood all the time. But never in my recollection did I realize that a big university was around me. Because there are those untold, like those unsaid rules that a kid like me from a low-income background, I knew that this wasn't a space that was created for people where I come from. So I would always walk on this campus, but I'm like... The only black people I saw were working at McDonald's. They were the essential workers who were security guards, the allied burden people, or an occasional homeless person, or the the people that live in the projects up the street. So I think that speaks to how, you know, silent and pervasive that racism can be, that a kid like me grew up less than 10 minutes from this university, but it was never marketed to me in my schools. People, representatives from Penn weren't coming to you know, John Bartram or Motivation High School or some of the, you know, small local schools in my area to to pick up kids. So it kind of it's kind of funny that I was able to scratch and claw my way to Penn. But even when I got there, even at Temple, uh, attending two PWIs, my experience as a black man trying to maneuver those spaces, it was very interesting because I would always get the uh, you, you can't be from Philadelphia. You talk so proper or you're so well groomed. Like you come from here, and I would say, yes, this is my hometown. Uh, a lot of my friends are well spoken. A lot of my friends are well educated. Like, what is it that you see when you see me? So, just I can definitely speak to that. Just trying to negotiate my blackness in white spaces that has been very challenging. There's a term called imposter syndrome, and I've felt that my entire academic experience. I've always been a part of the the few, a part of the exception. In the beginning of this interview, you mentioned that I was one of 24 students at Temple University to receive a Diamond Award. But when I look to my left and my right, I never get to enjoy these experiences with people that look like me. So I often find myself as having to be a role model or a spokesperson for the entire community because I happen to carry myself a certain way or I can speak in a certain manner. And the weight of that pressure is immense and it weighs on you. And I feel like because of that, I wasn't able to enjoy my entire experience at Penn. I wrote an article on Medium where I basically said, 
I felt like a bystander to my own experience. I watched my experience at Penn go by. Like I felt like I was watching it in a movie. I never felt like I belonged there. There was times in class where I would be afraid to speak up because I knew that my counterparts or my colleagues were coming from so much educational privilege that they might have known more on the subject that I disagree with, but I wouldn't be able to go as far in the conversation as them. So most times I would not speak at all because I didn't want to be perceived as dumb or looked at as stupid. Or it would be times where I didn't know about, you know, I didn't know the abbreviations or, you know, certain things that certain words that my professor would use, but I wouldn't speak up in the classroom. Instead, I would, you know, pull out my phone really quick and research it on Google or something like that. Or I just refrained from certain conversations because I was afraid that I was inferior, like I wasn't enough. And I felt like that stopped me from doing so many things that I was accustomed to doing throughout my life and my my academic experience. I didn't have that confidence because I didn't feel like I belong. Even though I'd done all the work, if not more than all of my counterparts, I belong there. I just never felt like it because of the way America shows that it values the black mind, but also, you know, black bodies. So from everything that you're saying, what really comes to mind is education, mm-hmm. both from how you weren't able to fully enjoy and immerse yourself at the Penn education mm-hmm. because of this imposter syndrome of mm-hmm. where you were raised. But I think I mentioned it to you on the call. My dad's been a teacher in Chester for mm-hmm. the last 20 years. So I asked him, I was like, what are things that we can do to take part or actually facilitate change with it? And his he referred to the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And when you mentioned Police in a school wasn't even something I could have dreamed of growing up as a, you know, 10-year-old. But to what extent did police in the school or even just like the inner workings of what was happening there either interfere or impact feelings of safety or feelings of security while going to receive an education? It didn't, if anything, having a police at my school made me feel less pensive and less safe because I feel like even they were a threat to me. And it's, it's odd because a lot of the officers that you'll see in the school, these are very low paid positions. They'll be African-Americans and Latinos. And those are the very people who are like trained to target us or, you know, mm-hmm. they should make us feel safe. But it just was it had an adverse effect. And I would say that a lot of people look at me I told you guys a bit of my story. I was a a very troubled youth. Uh, I had my share of behavioral issues. A lot of people look at me and from a child to the point that I am today and they're like, yo, you made this dramatic shift. Like, what was it that clicked for you that allowed you to change your life? Once I got to college, that was the first time that I was in a space that was conducive to my learning. I didn't have to worry about a police officer checking my book bag whenever I was walking through, you know, my school or being expelled or being suspended or something of that nature. A lot of the schools in, you know, low income backgrounds, uh, there aren't environments that are conducive to learning for students. You are constantly on edge. You're constantly worrying about, is this kid going to beat me up in the classroom? Uh, If I say this wrong or look stupid, what is this kid going to do? Or am I going to get suspended for challenging my professor and speaking my mind or something like that? So a lot of the things that are deemed to, you know, keep us safe, they tend to have adverse effects on the students. And I think that's something that's uh, definitely worth exploring a lot more. Yeah, that reminds me and that I think prompts me to first uh, define, I think, a term that's very pertinent to this conversation, and that is privilege. Of course, in the beginning that Aiden, you first acknowledged that you grew up with, obviously you still have white privilege. 
and many people I think whether it's in the far right or the right or the people who don't quite understand or relate or feel compelled to this issue because they don't understand what privilege means like whenever I hear conversations about white privilege is not a thing or male privilege is not a thing privilege or having the white privilege that doesn't mean you don't have adversity that doesn't mean you have issues that simply means you don't have to constantly overcompensate or constantly prove yourself yes. to the others. As a white man, when you get pulled over by a cop, your first instant isn't to put your hand, both hands on the wheels and to worry about the type of manners and the type of words that you say could tick off or trigger some sort of negative responses from the police officer. As a white counterpart, you never have to worry about those. And that's what privilege is. Privilege does not negate the fact that you have issues and life is hard. It simply means you don't have to exert the same amount of unreasonable effort on certain issues as counterparts such as POC or black men or Asian men or whatever. So I just want to highlight that. And I think that transitioning to my own experience as a teacher, right? Like I told you, during my tenure at Teach for America, I was a middle school teacher at West Philadelphia at Harambe Charter School. Mm-hmm. I remember hearing a lot of my peers and a lot of teachers talk about, oh, I wish our kids, our students behaved like KIPP charter school. Mm -hmm. So KIPP West and KIPP charter school is a very well-known modality and a charter school system throughout the country. And KIPP West is a school in Philadelphia that's well-known for their behavior, that's well-known for the organization, right? That's for the outside perspective. I did a job shadowing uh, training for a day during my first year of teaching. I went and observed what the teachers are doing. Like, how are they establishing classroom management? How are they establishing their classroom dominance so that you can create that intentional and conducive learning so the kids can learn without disturbance? I went to KIPP and a couple other schools that had good uh, reputation within the education school system. Many KIPP systems, I realized, were problematic because you see these black youth walking down the hallways with their hands up. You see these black youth lining up against the wall like it's in a prison. It's a prism system disguised as education. And that's what privilege is because as a white student or as Asian or as a lot of us going to schools, you never have to worry about how to walk down the hallway. You don't have to worry about raising your hands to go to the bathroom. You don't have to worry about these things because we'll come from a more socioeconomic privileged backgrounds and we don't have the same sort of baseline of oppression that a lot of our black counterparts do. And I think that's what means is privilege, right? Mm-hmm. And especially it goes back to the previous conversation, the talking point of systematic oppression or systematic racism. Like I said, I'm not the expert, but this is my personal opinion and my exposure to this matter is that we're not, I'm not arguing that America inherently is racist. I'm not arguing that the country is out there to get black people or Asian people or whatever. I'm just saying there's a lot of nuances that some of us are going to have to work harder just to get to the same point of many of our white counterparts to you. And that to me is what privilege is or the lack of. Right. So because you were the first one, Monte, in your family to go to college and especially to most recently obtain a master's degree from an Ivy League school like University of Pennsylvania, education is obviously something extremely important to you and one of your many core issues. But can you elaborate a little bit more about where that passion comes from aside from your own experiences, right? Because I know that you told us uh, offline that you grew up with the child welfare system. Mm-hmm. And with my previous experience at CMAC, my last employer, I work with DHS in the school district of Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. So I see a lot of the issues that 
that exist and reside within the system. DHS is Department of Human Services, mm -hmm. and it is a governmental governmental institute that is designed to help out the troubled youth. But I realized that black youth who need the most help because they're the most oppressed, they're also being affected severely by the child welfare system or the DHS. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the black clients that I service and a lot of the families I work with, they despise and they hate it, DHS. Even though the principle and the foundation of DHS should have been for the people, right. but I realized the most affected people were actually the most discussed towards DHS or the child welfare system. So I would love to hear a little bit more of your insider experience because I don't know anyone else that grew up with the child welfare system. And I think that would provide a lot of value for the audiences. So to speak to my experience and the child welfare system, I think it speaks to just the transgenerational trauma that colored families face in this country. As I said, my grandmother came to this country in search of a better life when she was only 15 years old. That led to her having five girls. And, you know, my mother, it almost created a cycle in a way because my mother actually had me at 15 years old. My mother didn't have the opportunity to experience high school at all. And, you know, I had a bunch of siblings and, you know, due to various societal reasons, um, we ended up being in the system, me and my little sister. And, you know, my grandmother, fortunately, a lot of kids don't have a family member that would be willing to take them. Uh, my grandmother took us and, you know, she raised us up and I had a, a normal life, I would say. But I did carry the burden of wondering about my parents and, you know, our relationship. And uh, I feel like a lot of the effects of it didn't start to hit me until, you know, this place of my life uh, as an adult. I had a good life growing up, but I don't want to be the exception to the rule. I know that my circumstances aren't the same for everyone. There are a lot of kids who are in the system and they get funneled from family to family. And it also creates a cycle which leads to, sometimes it can lead to, you know, children growing up into adults and being dependent on the system for the rest of their lives. Going on to food stamps and then being in public housing, it just creates a cycle and it goes from generation to generation and it's hard uh, to break. Uh, so like I said, I had a lot of people step into my life that have enriched my experience through, you know, through church, through basketball. There are a lot of effects of some of those things I experienced that went unaddressed in schools. Um, I'm a huge advocate for mental health services. A lot of those things were just absent from my childhood. Nobody looked deeper into why I was misbehaving or, you know, some of my aggression that I had. I, it was never a person that, you know, sat down in my school and really wanted to learn about my experience. Half of the schools barely even have guidance counselors or mental health professionals. So for a lot of connections are made with the police officers or the school security. Those are, instead of it being like restorative justice, I feel like a lot of schools take the approach of disciplinary action. So instead of, you know, trying to meet you where you are and understand some of the, the nature of some of the things that they you've been through, it's like they enforce more like corporal punishment on you. I don't know the effects of that over time, but it's definitely traumatic. And I think it's definitely something that's worth, you know, paying more attention to the effects of growing up in a system and even some of the things that we just face out in our community and what that does to a person. It changes you. So Many of the measures and many of the reinforcement that schools take or the system takes mm -hmm. in terms of child welfare or DHS or whatever is punitive, mm -hmm. right? And of course, there's plenty of empirical research states that positive reinforcements always trump negative reinforcements. Mm -hmm. And, I, that's, and this is what I mean, and this is what we mean by system, systematic racism and the nuance of it. 
a lot of these issues and challenges and adversities that we all face and you face in particular mm -hmm. isn't overt or explicit it's implicit mm -hmm. right in a classroom you see teachers yelling at the students you see police officers in and out of the office you see the dean coming in i can hear the yelling down the hallway as you stated exactly monte people aren't asking why are these kids misbehaving mm -hmm. why are these kids showing traumatic symptoms mm -hmm. why are these kids yelling out of nowhere why are these kids being so disorderly you personally grew up in south philadelphia mm -hmm. with gun violence and drugs mm -hmm. i taught many students from similar circumstances in the neighborhood I had so many conversations after the school with my students once you build that relationship. Mm -hmm. They tell you stories, and a lot of these stories are extremely sad, and which is the reason why I'm trying my best not to be too cynical. But I remember so many kids telling me, oh, Mr. Kim, I don't feel like learning today, or I can't learn today. Mm -hmm. And I ask, why? Oh, my uncle got shot last night. I couldn't sleep last night, and I was awake till 6 a.m. because mm -hmm. they were just shooting, drive-by shooting, hour after hour till 4 a.m. How are you expecting these kids, these youth, come into the classroom to learn, to be mannered, to be properly behave mm -hmm. like their white counterparts or to their suburban counterparts when you grow up in a neighborhood like that? And what I learned is the fact that they're coming to school, they're showing up in a classroom in an attempt to learn something. I think that itself is the sign of bravery and commitment, right? I know this kid... One of my favorite kids, she ended up transferring because of, she was raped by her uncle, mm -hmm. which is her mom's younger brother. She is eighth grade. Mm -hmm. She cut herself four times. She was an, one of the few on grade level students that I had. What that means is many of black youth, they're four or five years behind their grade level. And she was one of the few that's within the same. So she was like eight students in my classroom. She started being truant and she didn't show up for days at a time and weeks at a time. And I asked her, what's going on? Why aren't you coming to school? And then she said, oh, Mr. Kim, I can't come to school because I'm sleeping till 2, 3 p.m. because I'm on a call with suicide hotline till 3 a.m. every day because I want to kill myself because I was raped by my uncle. Her mom doesn't know what to do because once her daughter, once her younger brother, her mom doesn't want to put her brother into the system because that's her brother, mm -hmm. right? And of course, as fucked up as raping your own like niece is doing, all this is just trauma and trauma and there's so much issues that all these black people are facing mm -hmm. but those aren't being addressed yep. people are only simply seeing the symptom of their behavior which is oh they're loud they're being disobedient they're speaking out of their terms but you have to look at the core issues and that child of uh, the student of mine i call them kids because i spent so much time they ended up transferring out of state because her mom didn't want to choose between her daughter and her uncle so she chose to leave right and i haven't heard back from my students since these are the few of the many issues that we all face, especially you face in the community that you grew up in, yeah. that, that the African-American culture, the black people face. And I think this is a reason why we have to talk about that. Black Lives Matters aren't just about black issue or mm -hmm. white. But the one of the things that I'm personally against is identity politics, because sure, it is a police brutality matter. It is about black men getting killed, but it's a human rights issues. Like Black Lives Matter isn't about black versus blue or black versus white. It's a human rights issue. Right. When people chant why all lives matters, right? I learned this recently. Mm -hmm. Before I, I thought it, it sounded funny because objectively speaking, when you hear the phrase all lives matters, it's not a problematic statement. 
you're right. All lives do matter, right? right? Some people believe in like vegans. They believe in all sentience, whatever. Uh, lives matter. Animals mm-hmm. matter. But all lives matter. It's a very non-problematic statement. But when you insert that facing the terms of Black Lives Matter, it's problematic because yeah. how can all lives matter if Black lives don't matter? Right. And I'm sure we all saw the Tracy Morgan segment that went viral on mm-hmm. Instagram, right? It was a comedic skit, and he talked about. It's funny that the statement Black Lives Matter is controversial because the term matter literally is the absolute baseline of human rights. Right. We're not saying black lives are better. Black lives are superior. Black lives are the best. We're saying black lives matter. And matter for a human being, I think, is the absolute baseline. It's the bottom of the bottom. And I think that's what we need to talk about. But also the BLM is so much deeper in my perspective. It's not, like I said, it's not just about... Police brutality, it's not just what people getting killed. That is what's happening today. But you have to dig deeper. Right. Like education, like child welfare system, mm-hmm. all those are attributing factors. And I was talking to my girlfriend, and she's a medical student, mm-hmm. uh, soon to be uh, a medical doctor. Her and I were talking about the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. And she told me this. Shout out to you, Becky. I know you're listening. Uh, <laughs> she told me that Black Lives Matter is a human rights issue, right. and it is a healthcare issue. And I asked her, what do you mean by that? And this is what she said, I'm paraphrasing. She said during her trauma rotation, which is she she goes to like ER for trauma surgery for emergency for like a month at a time. She personally had to help stitch or assist doctors for black men who are came into the emergency room being fatally shot by the police mm-hmm. by accident. They weren't even convicted. There were innocent black men who got shot and they came into the emergency room at 2 a.m for the doctors, for students like Becky to help save their lives, right? What happens during that? Because of the healthcare system that designs, ER must admit everyone who comes through. And a lot of these people, they don't have health insurance, right? right? But they have to be admitted and they have to be saved. So because these black men are innocently being killed and being shot by the police, they're now draining the hospital resources mm-hmm. and their finite resources. And because they don't have healthcare, What's happening? The, the rest of us who do have healthcare, helping them cover that, right? So the hospitals, when they're dealing with insurance companies, they're overcharging the rest of us to cover for those costs. So, and it is healthcare issues because think about if those incidents aren't ha- happening. Think about if the hospitals or the doctors, the ER room can reallocate their time and their energy and resources towards other things because of Black men are no longer being no longer being shot by accident, or black men are no longer being shot uh, by the police for the wrong reasons. And when she told me that, it really made me think because there's just so many nuances, there's just so many just interwoven issues that exist even within the BLM movements. Mm-hmm. And I think it is very important for people to understand that why this issue is very important. Yeah. It's not just virtual signaling. It's not just talking about this on social media, sharing this with your friends, or being bombarded by the news on both left and right. But it's about truly understand that it's human lives at stake. Right. And I feel like championing all lives matter, it takes a blind eye to many of the various issues that black people face in almost every facet of society. So I think it's definitely important when you meet people that are championing that to have a hard dialogue and have a hard, hard conversation about what they believe. And you share your beliefs as well, but in a productive sense so you guys can achieve some common ground. Uh, because I believe it's important for people to know how problematic that is and how it's further stifling the plight of black Americans in this country. So, Yeah, and it's really affecting every single issue, not just healthcare, but also education, but also business. Like 
the fact that there's a systemic educational system that's disallowing essentially or almost preventing a large portion of african-american youth to rise to a certain level like that's harmful to society at large at a baseline america was started as united states of america we the people all uh people from different areas all coming to one place my great-grandparents came here from Italy. Like, I think everyone is from a different place at the end of the day. That's what makes America, America. And the fact that we're stifling a certain race because of the color of their skin is just absurd and harmful at a very baseline. And not allowing those perspectives to get into whether it's business, whether it's healthcare, the more ideas coming together, the better from all areas. So it is healthcare, it is education, it is safety, but really the more we can undo this system, I think that's almost where we started this conversation. Mm -hmm. It is at a baseline systemic. There's, you know, between the police, between the education, it's just almost a vicious cycle at the end of the day. So I'd like to kind of hear your thoughts on like, because there's so many interwoven pieces of this system, mm-hmm. what seems to you as the first one to go after, or almost the one that would create the most change? Mm, I think that's a, a very tough question to answer, but I think it all goes back to educating yourself. As first, educating yourself on the issues, the historical context, educating yourself on who your representatives are as well on the state, local, and the national level. These people directly impact your experience in terms of, you know, funding for schools, funding for parks and recreation and, you know, state legislation. So I think empowering yourself that way by arming yourself with the information and the knowledge and then holding those people accountable, um, your local representatives. I think that's where we can really initiate change by casting your vote. I think that's one of the most powerful ways that we can exercise our power by just staying informed, holding your uh, local representatives accountable, but also rep- uh, realizing the the privilege that you have from whatever position you are and working to not only acknowledge that, but dismantle white supremacy from where you are. And this prompted a question within me because I feel like over the past weeks, you know, due to my education and, you know, my experiences, I have a lot of white friends and I feel like a lot of those people have placed the onus on me in terms of asking how they should interact with this movement. How can they act as an ally. So I think it would be interesting from to hear from your perspective of what are your thoughts on some of the, the recent events and also how have you used your privilege or how would you plan to use your privilege to act on some of what's going on societally? For sure. So I would like to echo what you said with education was the very baseline. Mm-hmm. So as soon as you know, I heard about the event, the tragic murder and the subsequent events. Mm-hmm. I dove right into books and podcasts. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that really came to me was, I don't know, his name is Ibram X. Kendi. He okay. wrote How to Be Anti-Racist. He's a professor at American University. Okay. So I listened to an assortment of his speeches. And the thing that really stuck out to me was he said there's almost no such thing as not racist. Right. He said that's like an excuse to defend racism mm-hmm. as a whole. So it's either anti-racist or racist. So I realized that it was no longer enough to just be not racist. I needed to be working actively against people that are racist, yes. right? So really taking that anti-racist approach. And the other thing that I really found helpful was his distinction of that. 
I think the common perception of race or racism is that it's intentional, conscious acts of evil or unkindness, Mm -hmm. right? But he makes the argument that it's actually uh, based around actions or descriptions. So Mm -hmm. it's not identity-based, but it's actually like an adjective, description-based. So just because someone does something that's slightly racist doesn't mean that they're a treacherously evil person. Mm -hmm. It means that they made a mistake. And he says that the key to being anti-racist is making those mistakes and fixing them and looking at how you can improve. And that really kind of, I mean, inspired for me, even just having this conversation is knowing that I have so much more to learn and wanting to like hear your perspectives mm-hmm. on everything. So education was definitely the smallest thing or the smallest and most baseline because if you're not educated about something, you can't act from an intentional or like truthful or even productive space. Right. And then following that, it was really just supporting. I mean, I just bought this whole stack of books here is mm-hmm. from Bobby's Bookshop yes. in Philly. Yeah. So I just realized that like there's so many small businesses in Philly. And mm-hmm. as you can see, you commented as soon as we got in here, I like books. I yeah. ordered a bunch. Why the fuck am I paying Amazon for them? Right. There's like numerous uh, bookstores that could really benefit from this business. So that was kind of one of the main things. I definitely could have done more. The protests were right down the street, mm-hmm. but I never really found myself called to stand on the front lines with the pandemic going on. That was a really challenging thing for me mm-hmm. between the two. I know it's challenging for everybody. I listened to someone talk about on, like, tell their account and mm-hmm. talking to other African-American people at the protest. And they're like, we don't want to be here either. And I'm curious for your perspectives on here. We don't want to be here, but we have to be here. Right. You know, and I think that's the same thing even in Instagram or mm-hmm. like social media. We don't want to be bombarding people with uncomfortable uh, messages or call-out culture. I don't yeah. think anyone likes call-out culture. When we, when you first got here, we were BSing about how everyone's going to find a problem on Twitter, how yeah. it's sometimes hazardous. But I think no one wants to like harass people on mm-hmm. Twitter. But at the end of the day, we need to like instill these productive ideas on people right. at some point or another. So it's not that we want to do this. It's not that we want to call people out. But it's 2020, guys. We've been fighting the civil rights movement for hundreds of years Mm -hmm. we really just gotta finally figure it out right i think you said a lot of important things and i haven't had the opportunity to get out to any protests as well but like i said i think it's important to initiate change from where we are and that's why it was important for me to use whatever influence in my platform to host that community call to action but emotional support space because everybody has a role in this fight we have the people that will be on the front line and then we have the people who are the educators. Um, We have some people who are the healers. And due to my educational experience, I went to school to become a therapist. So I noticed that there are a lot of people on the front line that are championing this movement and spearheading it forward. But we also need spaces where people to grieve. I was having a lot of conversations with my friends in private, and a lot of people were talking about how they felt. They were saying, you know, like, you know, I I know you don't care. I don't want to bombard you with how I'm feeling. And I kept noticing that theme. I'm like, I feel this with inside of me. Like I feel strongly about what's going on outside. I almost feel helpless. And I reached out to one of my boys, Darius. I'm like, we both have a good following. We both have these skills in presentation planning, event planning. Yo, let's organize a space where people can come together. The people that don't feel they want to go out and, you know, protest, but they still want to take a place and act as an ally in this movement. We had a few white people in there. We had people of all backgrounds on there, but 
I think it was it was very productive for people to have that outlet and to still feel like I'm doing something. I'm engaging in this uh, productive dialogue. We made a call to action. We exchanged resources, but most importantly, we gave people a space to express their grievances. So it just prompted within me that, you know, some people are not going to go out and protest or stand on the front lines, but there's definitely ways that, you know, we can get involved. And I think aside from that, I appreciate the efforts that you've taken. I think aside from the education, what I would challenge my, you know, the non-people of color listeners to do is to take a stance of personal accountability for their own education, but also uh, just be accountable and hold the people around you accountable and having some of those harder conversations because the education, that's the easy part. It's easy to pick up a book. It's easy to search something online. But if you have, you know, family members who are upholding the systems of white supremacy or you have friends and you openly acknowledge that they are doing racist things or have racist beliefs, but you don't do anything about it, I think you are further contributing to the movement. So not saying you specifically, I'm just saying Mm -hmm. in general. So I think it's important, aside from that education, uh, to take actionable steps by holding the people accountable where you are and even acting as an ally online because I seen a lot of my non uh, people of color friends online. They took strong statements and said, "You know, this is my belief, and I'm willing to stand beside the the people that I love who are not white." I think that sparked a trend. I saw a lot of people they're like, "Oh, because this person, you know, stepped out and you know said what they believe or challenged this person's belief." Like, at least I'm gonna think about what is it that I believe and which side of history I want to be on. So I think, aside from the education, just having that personal responsibility and also just holding yourself accountable and the people around you accountable for not upholding the system of white supremacy. I think that's very important. I'm really glad you brought that up because as I'm thinking about it, it's almost like in the manner that George Floyd was killed, Mm -hmm. it almost illustrates the importance of that because there were three other cops around there that if they stayed accountable, that we wouldn't have this problem or we wouldn't have this tragedy. Mm -hmm. This crux problem would still exist, but just the manner that it illustrates, mm-hmm. I think, shines a light on that accountability issue. Right. It's no longer not enough to just not personally be racist, but we need to actively change that narrative. Which kind of makes me curious is with this Zoom call that you created mm-hmm. with these people from all across the country, mm-hmm. which is a fantastic effort and sounds like an incredible way to like engage in dialogue. Mm-hmm. What were the big things that you were hearing? What were you hearing across the board or some of your big takeaways from what that experience was? The Zoom call, like I said, was a call to action, but also an emotional support space for people who had strong emotions and feelings about what was going on out in our country and, you know, wanted to work towards some solutions, but also find a place to grieve with like-minded peers. So we organized this in a way where initially we shared mental health resources We shared some books that people could read to educate themselves on the issues, but also for leisure, for self-care purposes. We gave people a list of uh, the upcoming election dates. We previously had the the primary election date, and then we have an election coming up in November in Pennsylvania. We uh, informed people of their representatives, and we also worked with students from Howard University and other universities across the U.S. 
to inform people of their, their representatives on a state, local, and national level that they can call and hold accountable for making change. We had some discussion questions, and then we did a call to action at the end. And we also gave people emotional support space for them to express how they felt about what's going on. And we found that it was very productive. And at the end of it, a lot of our call to action you know, was within education, keeping the dollar within the black community, supporting black businesses, holding your representatives accountable, and also recognizing um, that we all have a place within this fight, but also that we need to unify. I see a lot of things going on and people are in their individual silos, but when we're not unified, when we don't take a, a unified stance, it's hard for anything to gain traction or momentum. So that was a big thing that we talked about, like how can we further this conversation and how can we turn this conversation into action outside of the protest? Okay, we have the the national attention of the protests. You know, the government, they see us. They see people out in the communities marching, rioting, looting, whatever people chose to do. We have the attention. Now, what can we do with this attention to create a shared, a strong movement? So that's a lot of what me and my friends have been brainstorming. We want to hold another one, but we want to be intentional about giving some type of practical element that people can do and get active aside from just signing up petitions and making the donations because all of those actions, they're good things. But in the grand scheme of things, it's going to take something a lot bigger, a lot stronger to create a, a substantial change on a societal level. So that was the largest call to action. Just what can we do from where we are to make a unified front where we're educating people, but we're also working towards that change? And that's that's a big question to ask. So hopefully as we continue to host those Zoom calls, we could start to work towards some of those solutions. But I think part of it is just getting people to you know, come together. Yeah, well said to both of you. And a few things come to my mind. I think all of us are pretty proud of the fact that we're Americans, right? And I think that is one of the greatest and the deepest privilege that a global citizen could have. United States of America is a great country to live in. It is a prosperous country. But I think we should have a shift focus on identity, less on America, but on United States. America is in a unique standing in the global arena. Not many countries share the aspects and the components the United States does. Like America is a great country and it is a boiling pot and it's a melting pot. And Europe, Asia, none of those other continents have the leverage and the power that we do. Mm -hmm. So for us to be proud to be Americans, we have to also focus on the former part of the country name, United States. And like both of you alluded to earlier that it is a united pathway, it is a united way, and it has to come into unicity, the unity of all of us and our collective impact. Right. And that reminds me of uh, the blacked out post I shared on Instagram. Some are posting on social media, some are protesting in the streets, some are donating silently, some are educating themselves, some are having tough conversations with friends and family. A revolution has many lens. Be kind to yourself and to others who are traveling in the same direction. Just keep your foot on the gas. If you were listening carefully to the six sentences and statements that I just read off of, non-action was not part of it, right? right. All of those came into different lenses and different speed. Mm -hmm. like, like we all talked about, I didn't partake in protest because I visit my parents in Pittsburgh about every six to seven weeks. Right. And I'm not going to risk getting exposed to COVID. I'm very risk averse right. as, as a person, right? However, I'm doing my part on my end, we're having this uh, difficult conversation and very thought-provoking conversation in public today during this interview. Aiden's doing his part with this educating himself, with being uh, better informed. Right. You're doing your part with call to actions and Zoom meetings. Mm -hmm. But the important question is, 
like what we talked about earlier or the media social media was spreading silence is violence mm -hmm. absolutely like being a not a racist like aiden talks about is not enough staying silent is not enough you can take different type of actions but you must as a non-negotiable take some sort of an action and have you have to act on it right, right. whether it's self-education whether it's marching on the streets whether it's having conversations like the post talked about they all have to be revolved around some sort of actions right. and that reminds me of bystander effect in psychology right. uh, for some people who may not be familiar with that what that means is bystander when there's a group of people let's say there's some sort of incident or accident or something's going on mm -hmm. if there's a group of people of 10 to 15 people if not a single person is calling the police no one else is going to call the police because the bystander effect means oh someone else is going to call the police oh someone else is going to go call for help right because you as a bystander you're being conformed like the conf uh, confirmation bias mm -hmm. you're comfortable being with everyone else and you are social animals inherently right so if no one else is taking actions you the chances are you're also not going to take any actions but i think with this month of june have taught us what 2020 have taught us is that like every obstacle could be reframed as an opportunity yeah with covid19 global footprint went down by 17 percent which is insane with uh, australian wildfire uh through change.org and a bunch of organizations we created one of the largest fundraisers in human history right, right? with this blm issues we're going to have a lot more difficult conversations and people are getting hyper exposed and there is both comes with pros and cons of that but right. i think we have to seek out the discomfort in the opportunity that presents through the obstacles and that only could happen if we are taking part collectively and individually yep. and yeah that's what i want to echo after you two and, and i want to say that i think we're seeing a lot of good good things happening it's like a little a lot of like little small incidences but I think those are good and and us reaching the collective goal with Brianna Tyler's case being reopened. I think that was a huge landmark. Of course, we have much further to go, but we're seeing things happening and it's because people are unifying together. And a lot of the protests that I observed, I did have the opportunity to go to the art museum when there was like, I think like 100,000 people out there and the unity that I saw, it was very inspiring and it was very beautiful. So. Uh, it's very important for people to, you know, come together and act as allies to support us in this movement because I'm seeing things happen and I know that you guys are as well. Like things are happening societally and even with the Rizzo statue being taken down, we're seeing that happen in states all across the U.S. Um, there's a conversation about Confederate flags being removed. So I think these are all little small things, but um, they're indicators of progress and that our voices are being heard and we're headed in the right direction. So. I would just encourage everybody to just continue to fight from where we are because, you know, things are happening right before us. Yeah, man, I can't agree more. I really think that we all are seeing, maybe it's the optimists in us, but we're all seeing monumental change that really hasn't been seen before. I've talked to a neighbor and he said, oh, like, I hope this, you know, stays its course. I mm -hmm. hope it doesn't get swept under the rug with the next news story, the next right. headline that comes around. But I really feel like this seems different. It seems like things are fundamentally changing and it's being done in a productive and peaceful way, right. which really makes me think and really aggravates me in the way that the media is portraying it, both with the videos of police coming out. I mean, there are still, the ironic thing is that there's still police brutality yeah. happening at police brutality protests. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing that I'm curious for your thoughts on but just how the media is portraying this whole 
United States coming together for productive and necessary change. Why are we seeing such videos of like the looting, the just bad things happening? If it bleeds, it leads. I know it's like a annoying mm -hmm. bullshit media saying, but what do you see the role of the media in all of this? I think a lot of the things that the media puts out is just counterproductive to the things that we are very much fighting for. Like there's a huge movement right now going on to defund the police. And a lot of people have mixed reviews on what that might mean. But I noticed that since that conversation has come about, you've seen a lot more photos and videos of police officers with black and brown kids in the community playing basketball or standing in solidarity with protests. And it's kind of like all lives matter type of approach to, you know, talking about black lives matter. It's very counterproductive. And I think that media won't show the other side of things where we're protesting together and they won't show the images of the positive things that are happening because I think it it all goes together. Like a lot of these news outlets are, I'm not like a political person, but I know that there is a certain agenda attached to whatever the media is doing. So that's why social media is very important because there are a lot of cases that aren't being covered about black men, black women, black trans lives, everything. It's so many identities and black people that are being affected, but we won't know unless we galvanize our own social media followings and augment these voices and augment these cases. So where the media won't show, we gotta stick together. Our youth use whatever platforms that we have to continue to raise awareness to is almost undeniable to where they can't ignore it anymore because I noticed that that's a lot of what's going on, but the movement is just so big. Like we said, we never lived through anything like this before. They can't ignore it. They have to do something about it. And it's like, even if the media isn't taking advantage of it, a lot of our representatives on the state and local level, they have social media, so they're seeing these things. So they're forced to take action eventually. So our generation has the ability to kind of like sidestep the media and kind of bypass whatever propaganda it is that they're putting out. And that's why platforms like Instagram and Twitter are also very powerful because I'm not gonna lie, as a millennial myself, Twitter is where I get a lot of information. I learned a lot of things on there about a lot of you know racist corporations or a lot of historical events where of course, I'm not going to take Twitter as my sole credible uh, source of information, but if it's something that I see and it sounds interesting, I'll research it further. So I think it's very useful in that sense of collecting information that way. But our generation is in a, a very powerful place because, you know, we have the ability to control what we all see. So I think we're sidestepping the media in a sense and putting out our own narratives and getting the attention of the right people. We're creating the new media, right? We're right. just sidestepping like Twitter and Instagram are the new media. Yeah. And I think that's the exciting thing because before anecdote wasn't really was brushed under the rug. It's like, oh, just because you heard one person say this doesn't make it true. Right. Where's your scientific study? Where's right. the statistics on it? But with forms like you mentioned Medium, you mentioned Twitter, mm -hmm. like all of these decentralized media networks yep. are allowing people to share their stories where eventually an N of one person, an N of one anecdote compounds into stories of a thousand. Like mm -hmm. you see the one tweet up at the top and then you see a discussion board of yeah. a thousand people <laughs> talking about the same shit that happened to yeah. them. But I think that's the exciting thing. And I think why this movement seems different is because people are so connected that way that they're able to share their experience. And I don't think we could have this sort of movement or revolution 30 years ago. Definitely. You know, what are your thoughts on technology with it and even how you've used your social media or your own voice in all of this? 
I've been really intentional about using my social media to just spread information. So if there's any books that I'm reading, I'll post it on my story or I'll just post it on my page. And just leaning into discomfort, I feel like as a black man, I think we're raised on a lot of like hyper-masculine ideals. So when it comes to the ideas of standing in solidarity with gay and trans folks, that's uncomfortable for a lot of black men. But being a leader that I am, I recognize the influence that I have and how important it is to stand in solidarity with those folks, but also black women. So just leaning into discomfort and being willing to have some of those harder conversations, but showing that I'm also, this is bigger than George Floyd. It's about Breonna Taylor. It's about Sandra Bland. And it's about the trans lives that we're taking as well. Um, so I think just being a leader and posting that content for people to see and putting myself on the line, you know, people saying, well, DeMonte, he posted this, you know, I look up to him or he's my friend. Let me look further into these issues or maybe I can learn from him. So a lot of people have been reaching out to me based on what I'm posting to have some of those harder level conversations like, you know, what do you think about this or where can I go to receive some more information? So, yeah, it's just been really intentional about just spreading the information, spreading the information, not just about black men, but about all black lives because we all matter. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Absolutely. Are there any resources that you'd recommend us or our listeners checking out, whether it's books or even just thinkers, authors? Well, in terms of books, man, I would say uh, I just read Between the World and Between the World and Me by Tanahashi Coates. That book has been uh, influential to me in such a short amount of time. I actually want to read it again. I read it so quick because with the the state of what's going on in the world right now, I just feel like it was so relevant and applicable to my experience as a black man. The author is basically writing to his son about some of the things that he encountered and his perspective maneuvering through the world as a black man and how America undervalues the black body. So I felt like it was very relevant to what's going on right now. And another book that I read that changed my life exponentially was 12 Years a Slave. It's a long book. It's like maybe... 1200 pages but it's basically personal accounts from slaves during uh the slavery era well yeah personal accounts from uh i think sojourner truth frederick Douglass, and they basically talk about the atrocities of slavery and it was written in a way that it was very gory and very direct and it was a way that i didn't learn about slavery in school so it was uh very unfiltered and it was real and i feel like that really changed my perspective of what it means to be a black man in this country, but it also reinforced that responsibility of, you know, I have a place in this fight. Like my ancestors was fighting for something and me as a youth, like I need to continue this, this movement forward. So I think those books are a great starting place. I have another book called How to Be Black by Baratunde Thornton. Excuse me if I'm butchering his name. Anybody listening, I also have a book list of a bunch of different content from black authors. So I think mm-hmm. if anybody wants access to that, they can reach out to me on Instagram and I'll surely send that to you. But I think it's definitely important to go back in time and to get some of that information about what our ancestors were fighting for and you know incorporate that into uh, our movements of today. Other resources, I would say just follow some activists. Uh, I'm not reinforcing any of their agendas or anything like that, but who I've been following to get information is uh, Sean King, uh, Mark Lamont Hill, who owns Uncle Bobby's Cafe, Van Jones, and, you know, other influential black leaders. So uh, that's a good starting place for most people. But the information is everywhere. It's like literally if you open your timeline, you'll see somebody sharing something. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Absolutely, man. Yeah, thanks for sharing. 
Yeah, I love you too brought up the conversation about the power of social media and the power of technology mm -hmm. because social media is a form of technology. This podcast, this public voice that we were gifted through the opportunity is a form of technology, right? And if you look at 2008 financial crisis, because of the monopoly nature of mainstream media, mm -hmm. we didn't have as much leverages yes. as, a, as a common citizen, right? But it's only through 08 crisis we understand the many flaws and the corruption of and the within the housing market, the mm -hmm. investment bankers, the Wall Street. I think if you look at and examine the history, I love history because if you can't even examine the past, how can you evaluate the future? If you examine every single historical monumental crisis slash movements mm -hmm. slash revolutions, something came out on the other hand. Right. And if you look at President Obama, he won. And one of his greatest significant attributing factors to his winning was social media. Yep. And he utilized the power of social media because that's when it first had come up through like COVID, through like this BLM, through all these things we're talking about. We have to leverage that. Right. So much of the status quo is perpetuated and it's going to take a while. But the only constant is change. Right. You have to change. You have to attribute you have to be part of the change like we talked about non-action or non-reaction is not an option right. you have to do something it's necessitated by the conditions we have to do it i want to with all the resources i want to add another two resources that mm -hmm. i personally watched recently is uh bernie brown's call to courage on netflix special okay. it's from 2019 it's not directly pertinent to the black lives matter movement yeah. but it's pretty meta because in the conversation she talks about the importance of vulnerability, the importance of finding courage and vulnerability. And she talks about vulnerability is strength. Right. Because if you examine every time throughout your life, the most courageous moment that you've determined for yourself mm -hmm. or for the other people that have determined for you, you are vulnerable. Yeah. You're either facing some sort of a challenge, you're facing some sort of a discomfort, or you're doing something that deemed you as courageous. And she challenged the audiences in Netflix special that it is up to us to have that difficult conversations. Yeah. It's not up to the marginalized people to defend for themselves. If you see a six-year-old being beaten by her dad, it's not up to the six-year-old to defend herself. Right. She's helpless. She can, but it's up to the bystanders. It's up to us to advocate, to speak up, and to stand in solidarity with that six-year-old child. Yeah. Similarly, the, the, the black culture, the, the black communities are in a relatively powerless position because of the everything we've discussed. Mm -hmm. And it is up to everyone else to make that stance. Of course, to challenge and to change that perpetuated status quo takes a while. But the last thing I think that we want to do is self-perpetuate. Right. Right. We don't want to feed into that ecosystem. We want to challenge that status quo. Right. And uh, the other one that I want to resource recommend is both Aiden and I, we listened to a podcast by Tim Ferriss. With this most recent episode with coach george it was extremely thought-provoking for me and it's an episode that they shared about it's not a black versus white it's not a black versus blue it's a human rights issue right. and so i uh, recommend all these and like we all know that everyone learns differently and everyone have different modes of education right. i like to read i'm a visual learner some people like to listen through the audio some people like to learn through twitter instagram youtube university youtube university <laughs> google university some people have less attention spent than the others but it doesn't matter like people move at different pace but the matter is you're making a stance you're making some sort of a difference right and if i could plug another couple i would say 13th that's one that i believe is paramount for 
almost every family in America, every Amer- family worldwide, the way they shot it and the way that it was produced, I feel like the information is very digestible for any person, even if you're not college educated. So that's one of my favorites. The Khalif Browder story, the Central Park Five, all of these documentaries, they basically highlight and shine upon how, you know, black people, black children, black youth were wronged at every level by the criminal justice system. Those three are a good starting place for people looking to learn more about these issues who are not avid readers or, you know, not researchers. So, yeah. Thank you for listening to another episode of Discover More. We release a new episode every Monday on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And would really appreciate if you have subscribed and shared this with your friends. We hope you enjoyed this episode and join us next week in the journey of discovering more through intentional dialogues.